being apart from them for some extended uh, period of time, it prompts legitimate, heartfelt anticipation. And I know many of you know that same feeling. Maybe it's seeing your parents after a semester away at school. Maybe for you it's getting a hug from a spouse after an extended period apart. Maybe it's that feeling that you have associated with a boyfriend or a girlfriend who happens to be at a different university than you are, and so you don't get to see them all the time. Maybe you get to feel this sort of anticipation when you see a friend who's recently moved away. I think we all know this sort of feeling. We all know the desire to be with someone after being apart from that person, separated by both space and time. These are some of the sorts of feelings and emotions addressed in our passage tonight. Here at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and into the first half of chapter 5, we find a long explanation regarding the fact that we will be reunited to Jesus and to the rest of the church at Christ's second coming. And so in light of this, I I want you to consider your own heart. What do you feel, what sort of emotional response does the second coming of Jesus prompt in you? What is your gut reaction to the idea that Christ will one day return? Is it, is it joy? Do you look forward to that moment with great anticipation, looking forward to be, being united with God and being united with loved ones who have passed away? Does Jesus' return for you spark fear? I think that's a legitimate reaction at times to the second coming. Maybe you fear for yourself. Maybe there is some sort of sin in your heart. And just the thought of seeing Christ and looking at him in the eyes sparks legitimate fear within your own heart. Maybe you fear that day for a different reason. Maybe you fear that day for a loved one. Everyone in this room knows someone close to us who does not know Christ. And it is perfectly natural, perfectly legitimate to fear the day of Jesus' return for that person's sake. Uh, I think it's also important that some of us might respond to this idea with doubt. Maybe for you, you're, you're a Christian, and yet when you think of Jesus returning, you are filled with some sort of doubt. Because you're left wondering, it's been 2,000 years, and I don't see Jesus yet. Is he actually ever coming back? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you think this idea that Jesus is going to return to earth from heaven is far-fetched, and it's outside the realm of, of possibilities in your consideration. Well, let me just say something to that point. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, you're thinking about this. Let me just posit this. I want to give you something to think about. Think about this. If, if there is a God who created the world... And if this God created a world, and then that world that he created experienced a fall through the sin of man, would it not seem reasonable to you that this same God would want to make all things right again? That's all the second coming of Jesus is about. That's what is going to take place in the moment Christ returns. This is the moment that God is making all things right again. He will return to put evil away. He will return to establish righteousness. He will return to put death to death. 
You see, we all have all types of responses to the idea that Jesus will come again. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's doubt, maybe it's joy. But this leads us to the fact that the Thessalonians, when they began to think about the second coming, they were filled with grief. They were sorrowful over the thought that Jesus was coming back. Why, though? <laughs> right? That, that's an odd response, is it not? Well, the reason they were grieving was because of the fact that they had some sort of misinformation about Jesus' second coming. They had a misunderstanding, they had a misperception regarding what would happen at the second coming, and because of that, they were grieved. And so what Paul is doing here is he's correcting many of their misperceptions. He's coming to them through this letter and he's helping them to understand how to recognize or how to think about the second coming of Christ. And so I think that as we address some of the different ways in which Christ is correct or which Paul is correcting the misunderstandings and misperceptions of the the Thessalonians, I think we're also going to be encouraged and, and helped, and we're going to be able to see some blind spots of our own. So the main thrust of our passage is encouragement. The primary focus of this text is one of encouragement. As you think about the second coming of Jesus, you ought to respond to these realities with an encouraged heart. So with that said, let's read our passage. We're in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're beginning in verse 13. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. I want to start just by reading the passage. Here's what we find. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about, these, about those who are asleep, that you may not be grieved as others do when they have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to to surprise you like a thief. For you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. 
notice the repetitive call to be encouraged by the second coming of Jesus. It shows up again and again in these verses. Verse 13 of chapter 4. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not be grieved as others do when they have no hope. Verse 18, chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So I want to point uh, this out so that we can all see the main thrust of this passage. For the Christian, the doctrine of Jesus' second coming is meant to offer us hope and it's meant to offer us encouragement. The idea that Jesus will return in order to establish his kingdom and to invite the church to partake in his kingdom is meant to offer joy. And so with all of this said, we see two main sections in our passage tonight. First, it's related to the details surrounding what will happen when Jesus returns. So it's kind of a detailed analysis of of what's actually going to take place when Jesus returns. The second half of this passage focuses on how we are to live our lives in anticipation for Jesus' coming. So we're going to begin in the first half, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Again, here we see some of the key details related to Jesus' return. So it's clear, as you read through this passage, that this is a concern for the church in in Thessalonica. The church has questions related to Jesus' coming back and and when the people who are dead, who are in Christ, are going to rise with Christ. And and how is that going to relate with those who are already alive, anticipating Jesus' coming? Is there a discrepancy as to when the people who are already dead are going to rise from the dead? Or, Or Will they precede those who are already alive? That's kind of what seems to be happening here. They're questioning the process. Am I going to be able to see those who are dead? Am I at an advantage because I'm going to be alive when Christ returns? Are they at an advantage being dead when he returns? What's going on here? And for whatever reason, this was driving them to grieve. Now, As they ask these questions, it's leading to this entire discussion surrounding the details of Jesus' coming. So I I just want to point out, here in this passage, it's it's pretty straightforward. The general details of what Paul says are, are not too complicated. Paul says Jesus will return from heaven, and when he returns, the dead will rise first, they will meet him in the air, and then the saints who are still alive will meet Christ in the air as he descends. And in that moment, there will be a reunification that takes place. Those who have passed will be joined, those who are alive. And they will be joined with Christ. Certainly that is a joy which all of us can look forward to. Right? We should not grieve over the second coming of Christ. It should prompt joy. Right? We have a joy that one day we will be reunited with those who have passed away before us who happen to be in Christ. And yet we need to also be reminded that the ultimate joy of heaven is not even this reunification that will happen between us and other saints. The ultimate joy of heaven will be Christ himself. That's the ultimate reunification that we are looking for. That's, that's the moment that we are 
hoping to experience in heaven, when, when we get to see Christ face to face. Remember, God is the ultimate prize of heaven. Jesus died ultimately in an ultimate sense, not so that we could be reunited with saints, but he died ultimately so that we could be reunited with God. That is our ultimate encouragement. So look forward to that day when we will be reunited with God through Christ. Okay, so with these things said, I think it's important for us to look at some questions that we today, 21st century America, we might have regarding this passage. In reality, these verses have sparked a couple of different debates. I was hoping that you'd have them on your notes. It doesn't look like these two debate titles are there. Um, But essentially, I wanted to hit on two different debates. The first one is related to this idea of meeting Jesus in the air. What does this actually mean? Why are we going to meet Jesus in the air? Think about it. Why would saints still alive when Jesus returns leave earth to meet Jesus in the air and then presumably come back or something, right? What, what is he talking about? Why are we going to do that? Why are we going to go meet Jesus in the clouds? Well, people view this debate in two different ways. There's kind of two separate answers. The first is a lot of people uh, view this as a moment when Christ will return and the church will meet Jesus in the air And then they'll be removed from earth for a certain period of time until that time has passed. Then Christ will return with everyone. So there's kind of like essentially uh, two comings of Christ. He comes, gathers the church, and then in a time, a a later date, he's going to return. So we're going to discuss this a little bit later, but um, I want to explain my understanding of this passage I think it would be easier for a first century Christian, I think, to understand uh, the context here. And here's why. A number of theologians have pointed this out. I think uh, Gene Green, he summarizes this pretty well. Green points out that Paul is using a very specific word, and the word is, in Greek, parousia. Parousia. This is, it's, it's kind of a technical word in the ancient uh, ancient. Uh, Greece, throughout the, the Roman kingdom, uh, the Roman empire. And it, it referred to the coming, the word parousia means coming. So it referred to the coming of some sort of sovereign official, like a king, visiting one of his uh, cities. And so these sorts of visits, they would be accompanied uh, with great celebration. There would be all sorts of banquets. There'd be speeches where the the city, the leaders in the city would be giving speeches in honor of their their visitor. There'd be uh, a visit to the local temple. There'd be all sorts of donations. There'd be sacrifices. Statues would be erected. Buildings would be constructed. But here's the significant detail we cannot miss. When the parousia would take place, when the sovereign would come to the city, all of the leaders within that city and all of the, the individuals within that city, everyone from the town would leave the city gate and meet the king as he arrived and they would welcome him in and walk back into the city with that king. It was a form of welcome. So in 1 Thessalonians, the same imagery is taking place. 
That's what, that's what Green is pointing out, is by using this technical word, he's drawing on an idea that everyone in the ancient world would understand. In verse 16, Paul describes this, this glorious moment, the time when Christ will, will parousia, when he comes, all Christians, both living and the dead, they will participate in this grand event. We're all going to go and meet Christ in the air. There's going to be a, a, a triumphant celebration because Christ has, has reigned over sin and death. This will be a celebratory moment for everyone in Christ. In essence, this is, this is comparable to that moment that the entire population of the city goes out the city gate in order to welcome in the sovereign official as he comes to visit the town. So our meeting Jesus in the air is not about Jesus taking us away from earth. No, it's about us welcoming Christ into our midst. Second debate, when will this happen? So when will this happen? This is another debate that is is very readily uh, debated in our culture. The center of this debate is timing. When exactly will this happen? And I just want to give you fair warning. Things are going to get a little bit technical, right? This is kind of a technical debate related to the end times. How are things going to to end? So with that said, I, I want to point out that this entire discussion really centers on this idea of the great tribulation. Okay, maybe you've heard that term used, the great tribulation. Uh, it's a term used in the book of Revelation. It's also a term used in the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark. Uh, generally, there are two ways people understand the Great Tribulation as it's described in Scripture. Some people will view the, the Great Tribulation as a short, defined seven-year period where there will be great persecution and great suffering on earth. It's a, it's a time in history where there is going to be a, a moment of intense suffering and, and God's wrath will be poured out on humanity for sin. But it'll only last seven years. Others will argue that the tribulation actually refers to an extended period. It's, it's essentially the entire New Testament. It's from the time Christ departed until Christ returns. So the tribulation would be viewed as all of end times, the entire gamut of it. It's basically a slow decline of society. It's the incline of persecution against the church. And so with those categories in mind, here's how people understand 1 Thessalonians to fit into this idea of tribulation. First, you have people who believe in what they call a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, this is the view that the, the events of 1 Thessalonians 4 will take place before that seven-year period of tribulation. So before the great tribulation begins, Christ will return. He will gather the saints. They will go back to Christ's kingdom in heaven. And then after those seven years are finished, Christ will return. So um, I want to point out again, there's, in a sense, there's almost this two returns of Christ in this view. There's one that is a, a more subtle secret rescue of the church from these upcoming events. Uh, and then Jesus will return in a fuller sense. All of creation will see him. He, all of creation will experience his second coming. So if you've heard of the books left behind, if you've read the books left behind, that's kind of the view being described in those books or in those movies. 
So set, second uh, view. This is pretty similar. Again, the first was pre-tribulational. This is mid-tribulational. If you want to be technical, mid-trib, rapture, right? It's pretty similar in a lot of ways. Essentially, the, the, the idea that Jesus will come and, and rescue the church from this great tribulation is still intact. It's just when will Christ come to rescue his church from the tribulation. In the mid-tribulational view, essentially, the tribulation is split into two parts. The first part is going to be bad, and the second part is going to be worse. And so before the worst part comes, Christ will return, rescue his church to prevent them from experiencing the, the second half of the tribulational, of the tribulation. So it's a, it's a mid-tribulational rapture. So again, you kind of have some of the same key components. Uh, Christ is coming back to save his church from the tribulation by pulling them out of the world physically before he returns a second time. And again, in this, just like the first one, there's two comings of Christ. There's one that's private, one that's more secretive, and then there's the second coming where he will return in a greater sense. The final view on this that I think we should discuss is called a post-tribulational rapture. It's really the idea that at the end of the age, Christ will come. So there's kind of two categories here. Some people will view that hold the post-tribulational rapture. They'll still view that there's a seven-year period of tribulation, and Christ is just going to come at the end of it. Other people who hold a post-tribulational view will view the the tribulation is is not necessarily a condensed seven-year period. It's really just the entire church age. Uh, Either way, both agree that there's not two comings of Christ. There's not a secret... Uh, collection of the church away from the world. Both would agree at the end Christ will come, the church will rise with him in the clouds, and then they will return, they will return to earth in order to usher in Christ's kingdom. I would argue the final view is the most popular. Uh, And I'll give you kind of a simple reasoning, just kind of one simple reasoning. I know this probably deserves a lot more reasons than one as to why I hold this, but this is this is kind of what put the nail in the coffin for me. So I think the, the main thing we have to see is that there is great correlation between 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. So here's what Matthew says, Matthew 24. So this is Jesus speaking, and Jesus in verse 30 says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So notice all the similarities between Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4. You have reference to Jesus coming on the clouds. You have reference to these angels. You have reference to these trumpets. You have this reference to all of the saints being gathered to Christ in the heavens. It seems very, very similar to what we have in 1 Thessalonians 4. And here's what's interesting. When you read Matthew 24, it is very, very clear, and it's not debated, that Matthew 24 is referring to the final second coming of Christ. So even people who hold a pre-tribulational rapture view, they will say that 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24 are actually talking about two different events. 
Does that make sense? So they're saying these are actually not the same event being described in these two different passages. Even though I think as we're reading these two passages, they seem so remarkably similar. So that's, for me, I think the major reason why I would hold a post-tribulational view. Because Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are so similar. And Matthew 24, as you read the entire chapter, it's so clear that Jesus is talking about the moment he will return uh, at the very end in order to establish his kingdom and judge, uh, judge those who are, who are not part of the church. So, with all that said, let me just finally point out that regardless of which position you hold, this is still meant to be a message to encourage the church, right? Regardless of which one of these positions you hold, I, I, I may disagree with other people, and yet we can totally agree on the fact that this is meant to be an encouragement for the church. This is meant to prompt joy in our heart that one day we will meet Christ in the air and be reunited with God through Jesus. I also want to point out... Um, that there are more ways in which we agree with others who, who or in which I agree with people who, who may not view the, the tribulation and the, the rapture in the same way I do. And we'll get to those later. But for now, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. So now I want to transition in and go into this second, this second portion of our passage here. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 are directly related to what we see in chapter 4, verses Uh, 13 through 18. Here's the point as we come to chapter 5. No matter which position you hold, you're going to agree with this. Jesus' second coming is meant to spur us on to action. The fact that Jesus is returning, it's actually a call to change our lives, to order our lives so that we might anticipate his second coming well. All of these positions that I just described, they all agree on this. The fact that Jesus is returning should affect the way that we live our lives in the here and now, today. That's why we see what we find here in chapter 5. Paul is encouraging the church to pay attention to the way they live in light of the fact that Jesus can return at any moment. The return of Jesus is not only meant to give us some sort of emotional encouragement. The the return of Christ is not meant to merely make us feel better. The second coming should actually change the way we live and order our lives. So as we look at chapter 5, I want to point out that Paul uses a couple of different images to help us anticipate Jesus' return. The first one is, is that Paul, he, he, he uses this imagery of light and darkness, day and night. And this imagery is meant to, to help us understand how we are to better orchestrate our lives for Christ. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So notice the contrast there. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And from this, Paul now is going to begin to extrapolate these two ideas, this comparison, this juxtaposition between day and night. Jesus' second coming is referred to as that day. 
It's going to be a day for those who are in Christ. And yet, for those who are not in Christ, the same day is referred to as the night. So depending on your standing with Jesus, this one event can look one of two different ways. Either it's going to be a moment of great joy or it's going to be a moment of fear. For those who are in Christ, this will be a day of great encouragement. Christ's coming will be a moment that you gladly welcome. I mean, think about it for a moment. This will be similar to you inviting a guest of honor into your home. Imagine someone that you've wanted to meet all of your life. Maybe you're a Warriors fan and you've always wanted to meet Steph Curry and you find out you want a sweepstakes and Steph Curry is coming to your home, right? What, a, what an awesome sweepstakes to win. Think about that for a moment. I mean, Curry's coming to your house. You're going to be looking forward to that day with joy. And yet those who are not in Christ, they're going to look at that day quite differently, that day will come upon them like a moment of sudden terror. That day will come and it'll feel as though a thief has shown up at their doorstep in the middle of the night and broke into their house. No one anticipates a thief coming. No one is, is expecting a thief, right? That's what is so surprising about a thief coming into your house. That's what the day of the Lord will be like for those who are not part of the church. If you are not a Christian, this day will actually be a day of both surprise and regret. It will be a moment of remorse. Look at what he says here. He says the people will assume that there is peace and security until they are overtaken. We see this in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. They feel as though they are in control. They feel as though they have everything in order. They're satisfied with their lives and then in a moment everything changes. All of their control is suddenly lost. It's kind of like that, that contentment a mouse feels when it it comes to a trap and finds a slice of cheese, right? In that split second, they feel totally content. They feel totally pleased with themselves. But in a moment, it is going to end. You see, in God's kindness, he has extended that moment of assumed contentment. You, You may be sitting on the trap, eating that slice of cheese, And yet God in his grace is withholding judgment. He is keeping that trap from firing. But the trap will not remain at bay. Eventually, God's kindness will run its course. So the all-important question is, will you take advantage of the time Christ has given you? Will you take advantage, recognize God's gracious offer, and turn to Christ? He's giving you an offer to turn to him right now. Do not delay. Do not remain satisfied with your slice of cheese. Notice what Paul says here. He points out that that many, however, will turn down God's gracious offer of kindness. Instead of receiving Christ, the coming of Christ will consume them unexpectedly. 
You see, the second coming calls us to action. If you are in Christ, then you ought to remain vigilant and anticipate that day. If you are a Christian, you ought to utilize this time in order to preach Christ to those who do not know him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you are not in Christ, then this truth demands response. This truth demands that you respond to the truth of Jesus. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ. He is graciously willing to offer you forgiveness for your rebellion. Now as we move into verses four through eight, Paul continues to encourage us towards action, but here we see some different illustrations related to the way that we are to anticipate Jesus' coming. Here we see that, that Paul is he's, he's showing us this difference between drunkenness and sobriety, and then he's showing us the, ditch, the difference between uh, uh, sleeping and staying awake and staying alert. We see this in verses 6 through 8. So then let us not sleep as other do, others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober, having putting on, having put on uh, the breastplate, the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Remember, the thief, the thief looks for the drunk who will have no clue who plundered him. The thief looks for the home where it is evident everyone is sleeping. Right? Those who are drunk, they're, they're left unaware of their surroundings. Those who are drunk, they're incapable of remaining vigilant. Their senses are, are subject to fail. They make rash decisions, so they're left vulnerable. Right? The non-Christian is comparable, compared also to those who sleep at night. When you're, when you're asleep, a thief can come in, do the damage. You don't know what hit you. Again, I want to point out that, that Paul seems to be pulling from Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, Paul is pulling from the words of Jesus. He's making the point that we ought to remain awake at night. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's calling us to stay awake, to remain sober-minded. Right? The sober are not easily plundered when the thief arrives. Those who remain awake are not the types of targets the thief is looking for. Jesus' point, Paul's point here, is that we need to have the correct mindset as we await Christ's second coming. We need to be on guard. We don't need to, to be caught by surprise. Instead, we need to be living in anticipation. You know, when it comes to the mark of a healthy church, a healthy church eagerly anticipates the second coming of Jesus. And its members seek to order their lives around the fact that in very short order, Christ will return. A healthy church is marked by individuals encouraging one another to look forward to the time when Christ will come. And so let me point out that Paul is actually using some analogies here. 
right? He's not necessarily saying just stay awake all night, every night, never sleep, right? Obviously. And in fact, even when he talks about being drunk, he's using an analogy. He's speaking against any sort of attitude, any sort of action, any sort of substance that can impede your sound judgment. The real command here is to avoid anything that prevents you to live for the second coming and to keep the second coming at the forefront of your mind. Right? That is the heart of the command here. I mean, by implication, this does mean that we should literally remain sober. But the passage means more than that. Clearly, God's command for us means more than we ought to avoid getting drunk. It doesn't mean less than that. We should avoid getting drunk, but it means more than that. Certainly, God wants us to do more than avoid uh, mind-altering substances like pot or other recreational drugs. And yet, God's getting at a bigger picture than that. We should avoid those things. And yet, God is calling us to more. He's really calling us to, to a life of vigilant expectation, a a life that, that is dedicated to be alert. The Christian ought to seek to remain alert in anticipation for the second coming of Christ, which means, yes, we should avoid getting drunk. Yes, we should avoid mind altering substances. So just side point here, just because pot is legal, right? That doesn't mean it is a good thing to pursue. Christian isn't totally fine just indulging in pot just because it's legal now, right? The call of Scripture is not merely obey your 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 uh, government. It, it's also to use sober sober judgment, regardless of what the government says. So we are to anticipate Christ's coming by remaining sober-minded, no matter what the call, uh, uh, no matter what the situation. Now. As we finish our passage, I just want to point out that, uh, again, we see the word encouragement at the very end of our passage. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Now, I've used that word a lot tonight, but I haven't actually defined it. I think we use this word a lot in our culture, in the Christian church and and yet we need a proper understanding of this word in order to actually act upon it right you see encouragement is not merely the feeling of butterflies to encourage someone doesn't mean you just make that person feel good about themselves that's flattery when you're just trying to make someone feel good about themselves regardless of what you regardless of whether or not what you're saying is true that's flattery that's not true encouragement Encouragement is actually a call to challenge people, to confront people, to call people out of their sin. It's really a call to action. That's what's happening here. We are being encouraged to remain vigilant. We are being encouraged to understand the responsibility that we have as Christians awaiting the return of Jesus. You see, at its core, encouragement is a call to action. So as we're hanging out here after Kairos as we're talking with one another and we say we're encouraging one another. There ought to be some legitimate conversations happening where you're asking people, what is actually going on in your life? 
What are you struggling with? Here's what I'm struggling with. And we're mutually encouraging one another by by calling people to live holy lives and, and helping people to see how they might live holy lives. So as we go out from here, we need to keep in mind that encouragement takes place when we call people to live in anticipation for the second coming of Christ. So I want to close by reading a passage from Jude because this really does summarize what it means to encourage people as we anticipate Christ's second coming. Jude verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.